Our great God, lead us this morning by your word. Speak, we pray. Let us continue to worship as we have celebrated your son, as we have sung of your goodness, acknowledged our need, and come to you on the only basis, the only, ba- only foundation that we can safely come to you standing upon, and that is Christ alone, in his name, for his glory, because of his work, and pleading for his help, we come. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In the hymn, Free Grace, Matthew Smith writes these words, This pardon, this peace, which none can destroy, this treasure of grace and heavenly joy, the worthless may crave it, it always comes free. The vilest may have it, it was given to me. And then the chorus, Free Grace, is paid for all my sin. Free grace, though it cost so much to him. Free grace has freed even my will. Free grace to the end sustains me still. Another work called Thy Mercy, My God has as part of its lyric these words, Lo, the incarnate God ascended. There he pleads the merit of his blood. The point is he doesn't plead our merits. He pleads his merits, his blood. Um, Thanks, Mike Brzee, for reminding us of that transfusion. Pleads the merits of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. The selfless life we've talked about um, through uh, the latter portion of Philippians chapter 2, it was exampled by Christ and then by Timothy and Epaphroditus. This selfless life, as Paul has emphasized and we have been clear to observe, it's possible only in the Lord. In the middle of Philippians chapter 2, Paul commands, the Spirit commands believers to rejoice but, but we come to the beginning of chapter 3, and I think I said 2 before, but we're actually starting 3. I think I know right where we're at. And he clarifies. He clarifies something about the rejoicing that he has mentioned multiple times already in the letter. And it's the ground of that rejoicing. It's the sphere. It's what makes it possible to rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. I see, that's why the believer rejoices in free grace and doesn't put any trust in himself. That's why the true believer ventures on Jesus wholly because only in the Lord that, aside from all circumstances, we can yet in any moment and in any day find because of him the grace to rejoice. This is where our hope is found, in the Lord. This is where our confidence is grounded, in the Lord. This is our rejoicing in Christ alone. So let's read our short passage for this morning, and then I want to see just two applications from that for those who are truly Christ's. Philippians chapter 3, and follow along with me starting in verse 1. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, 
For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Two quick comments about the translation. Um, first, the word finally doesn't have to mean finally. Although the commentators have a field day with this, and down through the history of the church, it's a lot of fun preaching Philippians 3.1 and laughing at the fact that, uh, like any good preacher, uh, Paul says finally and then goes on for another hour. This is in the middle of the book, Philippians 3.1. Um, by the way, there's another finally in Philippians 4.8, as if he forgot he already said finally a chapter and a half earlier. Um, the word finally can just mean, and now as to the rest, or something like that. Additionally, there's a, a change of topic, but not an entirely new uh, change of sphere. The connection is also mentioned, or can be, in the next line in verse 2, to write the same things again. I worked hard this week to try and figure out what are the same things that Paul is referring to as he writes, and I'm still not sure. Um, although I have some better options than I did um, before, it could be that he's writing the same thing about rejoicing. I have two best options. There are several. He, he could be writing the same thing about rejoicing that he's been writing, but now he's going to ground it, rejoice in the Lord, and then he's going to warn them about how to make sure that they are in the Lord, that they are standing on the right ground. See how that would make sense? To write the same things that I've been saying, but just go further with, no problem for me and good for you. The problem is with that thought, um, he says to write these is a safeguard for you. The command to rejoice, how is that a safeguard? Yeah, you can get from here to there, but it's not immediately obvious. A second option that I like just a bit more is that the things that he's writing again um, are actually things that he has written them in other letters that are not Philippians. Or there are thing, they are things that Timothy and Epaphroditus himself are going to communicate to the Philippians, but they're not here written in the book. So even though the book says write the same things, they're not the same things that are written in this book. Does that make sense? The reason I take that is because everything that comes immediately after verses 2 and following has to do with them making sure they stand on the right foundation, which is Christ alone. This is a dire warning that he will give them. It's a serious one. And I think it's what dominates the tone. And yet his reason for raising it, the reason that, that false teaching and bad doctrine are, are such... Um, uh, a threat to your soul is first and foremost because of your, your eternal state, but also because of your um, present experience. Rejoice in the Lord, something you need today and every day. So that's my understanding. Just a couple of quick notes putting the pieces together. Two quick then applications this morning. The first application for those who truly know Christ is that your life flows from a person. Your life flows from a person, not from your circumstances. You can't find life in your circumstances. You might in the short run, but it'll collapse. Your life springs. It comes from a living being. Uh, what, what do we mean by life when I say your life flows from a person? Well, you can just jot these down or you can look back. Back to 121, Paul writes this, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is he talking about there? He's talking about his purpose. He's talking about his motivation. 
He's talking about the very ground of his existence. To live is Christ. Similar thing that we've got here. Rejoice in the Lord. Specifically, though, here, the, the life is is the source of Paul's joy, the ability to praise God in any and every circumstance. I want you then, just to quickly with me, notice Paul's rejoicing, as we've already seen it. 118. I'm going to go back there quickly. What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. This is what he said, middle of chapter 1. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. There the scenario was he was in prison for the sake of the gospel, and a lot of people, because of that, were preaching Christ. Some were doing it sort of in support of Paul. Some were doing it to sort of make Paul's life more miserable, to, uh, to sort of scratch the, the um, irritated part of the governing authorities while they had Paul in their clutches, say, well, we're going to do what he did, and maybe that'll make it worse for him. And what did Paul say? I don't really care what their motive is. In the preaching of the gospel, I rejoice, whether the motive is pure or selfish. And then in verse 18, a little bit later, 18 into 19, he, he says these words. Pick up where we left off. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation, uh, down we go to the end of verse 20, whether by life or by death. What's the point? Paul rejoices in his deliverance, which will come about by two things, uh, through the prayers of the Philippians and by the work of uh, God uh, in his faithfulness, uh, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's rejoicing in his deliverance, and here's the thing to note, verse 20, he will be delivered. He knows this for a fact, whether his deliverance is by life or by death. Do you understand that? You go, well, deliverance by death doesn't sound like a win, Paul. And then, of course, comes verse 21. Oh, yeah, it is. Do, do you see how the source of Paul's rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel is not based even in the motives of the preachers, whether it's pure or selfish? Do you see the, the motive, uh, uh, the, the, the power, the source of Paul's rejoicing in his deliverance it doesn't matter whether the outcome is death or life because his rejoicing doesn't have to do with the attitudes and the motives of the people or even in the outcomes of the situation. But the rejoicing is grounded in a person. One more in 2.17 at the uh, middle of chapter 2 there. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, here he's talking about his sacrifice and suffering, if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Even if it is suffering, he says, I rejoice and share my joy. So Paul has a spring of purpose. He has a flow of joy that is not found in his circumstances. It's found somewhere else. It's found in a person. Now Paul gets explicit with that source the source of the Christian's motivation, the spring of the believer's joy is a person. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I've just faced a terrible tragedy, and the scripture commands me to rejoice. How? 
Dear Lord, can I rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. Not necessarily in the tragedy, right? He is the ever-present source for the believer. Notice here that rejoice is a command at the beginning of Philippians 3. It could not be a universal command unless it was based in an ever-present person. He, being the source, is always available to grant the ability, the flow, the spring, the life to rejoice. Always. Doesn't mean we're not left with questions, frustrations, or many other hurts and pains. Surely. But it is a command. And that is a glorious encouragement. You wouldn't command it of me, Lord, unless I could come to you and by the supernatural endowment of your spirit, do it. Rejoice in the Lord. That does not mean to fake it. Act like you're happy about your circumstances. Philippians 3.1 commands, right? No. Put on a show for those you're going to see at church today. No great difference between joy and happiness, right? It doesn't even mean that we are to escape reality in order to find happiness somewhere else. No, instead for the Christian to rejoice doesn't mean to escape reality. It means to press into it, doesn't it? For the believer, he returns to reality when he talks with his Lord. For the believer, she recovers truth when she visits with her Savior. It is commanded because it is essential. If we rejoice in anything else, it will collapse, and we were made for him. So if we are to rejoice, Paul now makes explicit what's been intrinsically there the at least three or four other times he's mentioned rejoicing, and I'm not even talking about the times he uses the word joy, which is related to it. He makes explicit here for the first time in the letter. This rejoicing isn't produced by outlook or outcome. If you lose the big game or if you get the big promotion, rejoice in the Lord. It might be harder to do that when we're successful than when we find ourselves in trial, right? If you pass that test or if you're struggling with that debt, rejoice in the Lord. If you feel miserable because you failed to speak up when you knew you should have, or if you had the glory of helping someone to come and know Christ, either way, rejoice not. And even that so much as in the Lord. In all things we can rejoice in the Lord. Knowing this person then is life for the believer. Knowing this person, the Lord, that is the spring of restful joy. Speaking of Christian missions to Muslims, scholarly missionary Stephen Neal summarized it this way. Our task, he says, is to go on saying to the Muslim with infinite patience, infinite patience, sir, consider Christ. We have no other message. He says, the Muslim has not truly seen Jesus of Nazareth. Sir, 
consider Christ because we have no other message. What about Punjabi Sikhism? Sundar Singh was born in 1889 into an affluent Sikh family in India. He grew up uh, to hate Christianity. At the age of 15, he, uh, he burned publicly a, a copy of the scriptures. Three days later, three, day, three days after that, uh, he was converted to faith in Christ. Um, he uh, had earned some level, mostly by his birth and partly by his training, of being known as some kind of a holy man. And so at times, he was still, even after coming to Christ, given opportunity to speak in non-Christian settings as a holy man who was trusted and revered to speak about spirituality. On one occasion, he visited a Hindu college. There he was uh, aggressively accosted by a lecturer who asked him the question, what have you found in Christianity that you did not have in your old religion? I have Christ, he replied. Yes, I know, continued the lecturer impatiently, but what particular principle or doctrine have you found that you did not have before? The particular thing I have found, said Sundar Singh, is Christ. You see, your life flows from a person, not even his principles, not even the obedience to them, but from the person himself. Look in our passage this morning again, then, in the middle of verse 3, where Paul will repeat this idea. We are the true, we are the true circumcision, verse 3, who worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. We exult, we, we boast in Christ Jesus. Jesus, he says, regardless of whatever benefit we may have or whatever trial we may face, if we lose sight of a person, we lose sight of the spring of our life. Scottish covenanter Robert the Bruce, in 1631, being sentenced to death for the preaching of the gospel. On the morning of his execution, his daughter cooked him an egg for breakfast. That, that was his request. It was so nice, he said, that he almost asked for another one. And he paused, and he said to her, I breakfasted with you this morning. I'll have supper with Jesus tonight. Derek Thomas says of Robert, he was in the spirit. The spirit of Jesus dwelt in him. He knew how to live and he knew how to die. All of this because of a person. Your life flows from a person. Now Paul turns to a stern warning. It's a, a dire statement that he makes and he, he multiplies the warning he repeats the word beware three times. It's actually there three times in the original. Like I kind of got the point, Paul. Because of its temptation, that is so real. Because, because the human condition is so naturally predisposed to this error. What Paul gives them is the warning 
not to leave the source of their hope and turn to place their confidence and their trust in themselves. This warning that he's going to give in verse 2 and 3 really follow from the same topic that's there in verse 1. Because if your life and your joy spring from Christ, so your confidence and your trust are also grounded there in him, right? If, If he is what gives me life today and allows you to rejoice regardless of your scenario, it is only because the ground of your eternal hope is truly placed upon him. So he is your confidence. Your trust lies with him. It is such a common temptation to the human condition to want to control the bank of our own confidence. But, but the ground of our confidence is not found in us. Look within, the world tells us. I look within and I find misery and confusion and depravity. I look to him and I find life. Second application today for those who truly are Christ's, your confidence is found in another. Your confidence is found in another. Here's the stern warning then, again in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, he says. Three phrases, three repeated warnings, or really just a trifold singular warning. These three phrases then seem to describe the same adversaries that he has in mind to warn these Philippian believers of. The first, he calls them dogs. That's not terribly helpful for us reading today, 2,000 years later, to figure out who they are. Who, who, is the, who, who does he have in mind? What's the identity? The word dogs just speaks of their character. Paul likens these false teachers to scavengers. We think of dogs, and today, to be called a faithful dog, that's a pretty high praise, right? I think I used an illustration a few weeks ago that said, um, if you're really humble, you're almost as good as your dog, right? In the ancient world, dogs were scavengers. They weren't pets so much. Dogs were dirty. They rummaged through the garbage and sometimes killed things and ate that which was dead. They were unclean. Uh, The Jews, uh, at times, liked to speak of the Gentiles as dogs. Paul's going to turn the tables here, actually, on the religious folk. And he's going to say, these who are trying by their religion to get to heaven, they're the dogs. You'll see that as we work through. Second phrase, evil workers. This speaks really of their conduct. Their work was evil because it led people astray. It led them away from a true foundation in Christ. It led away from confidence in Christ rather than themselves. By using the word work, by the way, Paul may also be hinting at their self-trust and their self-righteousness. They're evil workers. They, They try by their deeds or by their work to be justified. But finally, he um, clarifies for us exactly who he has in mind here in verse 2. Beware the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and then the third phrase, beware of the false circumcision. Some of your translations will say beware of the mutilation, and that's a a good translation. Paul is, is making a play on the word circumcision. He has changed the word for circumcision to mean a different kind of a cutting, and it has the idea of bodily mutilation, and that's exactly the feel that Paul wants to give his readers here. If you, by your works, by trying to be circumcised and keep the law code, the Mosaic 
code. This is what a group of people known in the first century as the Judaizers often came and proclaimed to new Christians. Oh, you believe in Jesus, that's good, but it's not enough. If you want to be a good follower of the one true God, you also have to keep the law. And that includes circumcision. Circumcision, is, circumcision was one of the clearest signs of whether or not a person was a law keeper. And so it was often singled out as sort of a catchphrase for the keeping of the whole law. Paul says, look, if, if you want to try and keep the circumcision, like these people are telling you, look, yeah, you believe in Jesus, that's good, but you also need to do all this other stuff that God commanded back here. He says, if you try and do that, you might as well just go cut your body up. Go mutilate yourself, because that's how good it is as far as achieving for you a righteousness before God. The false teachers, then, we now have identified by the third phrase. There are those who are preaching the law and preaching circumcision for the sake of salvation. And we find them named in several other, mentioned in several other places in the New Testament. I won't divert down that path. The crux of the matter here is that this group is adding requirements to the gospel. They are adding uh, requirements for salvation, adding works. Yeah, you have to believe, but then you also have to do these things if you want to go to heaven. You have to be good enough, in other words, to merit grace. Well, if, if you doubt that this is a right understanding, don't just take my word for it. Look down to verse 3 for further clarification. And look what he says at the end of 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. How were others putting confidence in the flesh? By their law-keeping, by, by the keeping of their rules. Yes, holy habits are used of God to sanctify us. Fasting, giving, um, silence and humility, right? There is a, a long list in the, in the church of Jesus Christ of practices that help us grow in hearts for the Lord and experience of the Lord. But, but as a basis for, Lord, you should save me because I've done this, they're a terrible foundation. Paul uses the Pharisee as a negative example who goes up to the temple and prays before God, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like this tax collector and sinner. I fast twice a day, and I give of all they have, and I'm a really good guy. Aren't you so glad, Lord, that when I get to be in eternity with you, maybe I can show you some things? And his merit is in himself. Verse 3 says, we place no confidence in the flesh. Instead, we would say we believe in what I think is rightly termed, we believe in an alien righteousness. I love that description. We don't have an, a native righteousness. We have an alien righteousness that is given to us, that is imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. All of the sin of mankind was imputed to him so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God was imputed to us in him. It's an alien righteousness that came from Christ. I now stand before God clothed in his righteousness, not my own. And so all of that is to say another way. Your confidence is found in another. Well, we could go down this track historically and find it fascinating, look at what it might have meant more in that day, but I'm just going to jump ahead for the sake of time and talk about what it might mean for us in several ways 
in our world today. This is one place that we are at odds with Catholic understanding. And, and both Protestant and Catholic teaching recognize this, in fact. I appreciate that good Protestant teaching and good Catholic teaching actually say, no, there is a difference. We don't just all agree about the gospel. There are things we see differently. And the key thing is to say, the difference matters. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1995, and I quote, said, justification is conferred in baptism. The Council of Trent from some centuries before said this, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in other words, that sinners can be made righteous, if anyone says that sinners can be made righteous by faith alone, apart from any works, apart from anything they've done, that's the key, the word alone, then it says, let him be anathema. Anathema was the church's way of saying accursed. The Catholic Church's official teaching is that the faith that I hold and the way that I hold it is consigning to hell. And I appreciate that they rightly understand. I appreciate that they say this is so important to get the gospel correct. And Protestants would say the same. It is so important to get the gospel correct. Let me just read to you Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, in other words, who doesn't try to save himself, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, or in other, in other words, the impious, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And where does that righteousness come from? It's what Christ accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection right? Another departure from the message, we would say, is found today in many Protestant churches and others. The message of the prosperity gospel, right? At its heart, many teaching the prosperity gospel might say you are saved, you can go to heaven by faith in Christ alone and apart from any works that you accomplish. But then in practice, you are such a second-class Christian, if you don't do certain things that don't experience the blessing of God as a result, that it very quickly begins to beg whether or not you even have the foundation to begin with. One author has said this, over the years, the message preached in some of the largest churches in the world today has changed. By the way, having been in Africa, dear faithful brothers that I've had the privilege to fellowship with have told me of huge churches in Africa who are entirely captured by the prosperity gospel. Huge churches in Africa. A new gospel is being taught today in America, in Africa, other places. This new gospel it is perplexing because it omits Jesus and it neglects the cross. Instead of promising Christ, the gospel promises health and wealth. And it offers advice like, declare to yourself that everything you touch will prosper. For in the words of a leading prosperity gospel preacher, quote, there is a miracle in your mouth. Prosperity gospel goes by many names, name it and claim it health and wealth, word of faith, gospel success, positive confession, 
It's not new. It's been around in some form or another for some centuries. Uh, but good Western Americanism, uh, combined with some prosperity in our country, has caused it to explode and now be exported around the world. Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Hagen, and many others. Just check their actual teaching. Why is the change of focus so deadly? Why does Paul say three times, beware? Because it's a different foundation altogether. And if we build on our works, if we place confidence in our flesh, then it will collapse like a house of cards. What about this then? What about obedience? Well, absolutely, Scripture commands obedience, but not for salvation. Scripture commands obedience from salvation. We, we respond now in grace. Lord, nothing I have ever done or could do can make me stand righteous before you, a holy and a beautiful and a glorious God. And you have given it to me free in Christ for the taking, for the admitting, for the asking. So now, oh Lord, what would I not do in obedience for all that you have done for me? See, the problem of trying to obey in order to get saved is that this kind of obedience for salvation requires perfection. Don't take my word for it. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Galatians 5, by the works of the law shall no one be justified. And that's just in the eternal sense. How about just trying to do this in the temporal sense? What does this look like? If you've uh, ever heard of uh, the name of Jerome, who lived in the 4th and into the 5th century, uh, one of the great translators of Scripture into Latin, uh, the Latin translation known as the Vulgate. Um, Derek Thomas tells us that uh, Jerome went out into the desert uh, because he wanted to become a hermit. He wanted to be an ascetic. He wanted to live a life completely devoted to God. And he wanted to know what it was like to really know God by, by really like um, abstaining from anything and everything his flesh could ever have, right? So he went to the desert and he lived among wild animals and scorpions. And as a result, he became emaciated because of his extreme methods of fasting and trying to live by the standards of God's law as he understood it. Uh, he writes in a biography that he was trying to conform himself um, to, to the law's that he found in, in God's law, as he saw it, and in his mind, uh, and, and, and that even in the midst of the desert, while his body was wasting away, he despaired because he said, still, my mind was filled with the thoughts of the young girls who had surrounded me in Rome. The, the biggest problem is he couldn't get away from himself. The law couldn't help him. In fact, all that the law did was exacerbate his sin. It condemned him. It was, as Paul writes in, in Romans, the law of sin and death. Our confidence is not found in our flesh, is the point seen. There are so many different ways. I don't need uh, an official church to teach it. I don't need another religion to promote it. I can find it all on my own. And the life of the follower of Christ is continually coming back to the one who alone gives me his righteousness, and there I find the ground of my confidence and the source of my joy. 
In contrast, then, to this false circumcision, verse 2, he summarizes verse 3. We are the true circumcision. And true believers will know and experience these three things. Every true believer will do these three things. Not perfectly, not all the time, but they absolutely must and will experience these three things. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Friend, are you good enough to meet a holy God? If you think you are, you're deceived. Friend, are you trying to be good enough to meet a holy God? Don't. That's the great news of the gospel. Because the Lord justifies the ungodly by faith, who cast all their confidence in him, who place their trust in him. And if you are trying to be good enough to be prepared to meet a holy God, then we have incredibly good news for you today. That is fruitless. That is pointless. That is exhausting. That is death. And the good news is the Lord gives you the very thing that you seek, but he gives it free. We'll cover this, Lord willing, in coming weeks. But the words are right there in verse 9 for where Paul is going, what he is setting up. He will rehearse in these next few verses all that Paul said, I could put confidence in. Dude, I was the coolest religious dude around. Nobody was as good as I was religiously. And he says, all of it, I, I, I put listed on a page of all my merits that at the top says garbage. And he says, here's my goal, verse 9. He says, I... I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Where is his righteousness going to come from? It's going to come from another. It's an alien righteousness. Greg Gilbert, I think, gives us a, uh, the true plea of a believer as he comes to the Lord in a little prayer he penned. Oh God, do not look for any righteousness in my own life. Look at your son. Count me righteous, not because of anything I've done or anything I am, but because of him. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve. I have renounced all other trusts, and my plea is him alone. Justify me, oh God, because of Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious Lord, our good God, we thank you that you knew it was impossible for us to ever be good enough to earn the right to stand with you for eternity. And yet you've loved us. You have desired us with you. These humans that you have made rebellious and twisted as we are, yet you have set your love upon us and now in Christ made a way that you can call us home. Lord, we trust not in ourselves. We cast all our trust on Jesus. Look at what he has done on my behalf. We venture on him. We venture everything on him. Lord, we ask today if any are in our presence and this is a new thought or a new idea, would you let them not rest tonight or even today until their soul comes and by an act of their will places its rest in Christ alone. And Lord, may we who know you walk in such a way that we are deepened in this Christ deepened in this trust. We find him more of a treasure. We find him more beautiful. 
And Lord, our joy resonates more deeply. This is what we ask, and we ask it for your glory. In Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. God.